right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Product Happy Hour. My name is Ajay Wagre. My name is Eric Johal. And we are your hosts for Product Happy Hour, where you can go to happy hour in your sweatpants. Um, today, we're going to introduce ourselves and talk more about System 1 versus System 2 thinking, which is a fascinating behavioral psychology concept. So let's go, Product Happy Hour. Cheers. So welcome to Product Happy Hour, everybody, where you can go to happy hour in your sweatpants. Uh, as I mentioned, my name is Jay Wagre. I am your co-host for this episode, episode one, the first one. Here we did it. We are here. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about what who this product is for, who this pod is for. I keep talking about products. Of course, product manager just keeps thinking products. We're making a podcast, damn it. <laughs> Um, so who's this pod for? This pod is for product enthusiasts. Um, so what the hell does that mean? Uh, it generally means if you're a product manager, engineer, designer, but also if you're in marketing, you're in finance, you just generally enjoy uh, talking to product folks, learning more about building products. This podcast is for you. It's designed to kind of mimic happy hour. As you can see here, I got my favorite beer, which is an Austin Peacemaker. Anytime ale made here in Austin, Texas. Ira, what do you got? This is the best 230 gin and tonic I think I've had all year. It's delicious, not local, but that's also, you know, not needed here in San Francisco. We'll we'll drink any alcohol. Doesn't matter where it's from. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And uh yeah, so this is, you know, we we both miss happy hour. Um, so it's designed to feel like happy hour. Uh, and the best product happy hours that we've been to, you know, we learn a lot of stuff from PMs we're working for, working with, whether it's new stuff they're working on or, or new concepts that they've learned. So uh, this is designed to be a lot like that. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, this is the kind of podcast that you're going to be embarking on. Um, let's introduce ourselves, shall we? Sounds like let's a good idea. It. Let's All right, do it. Let's do it. I'll go, so, go first. All right, do it. All right. Uh, my name is Ira Johal, and I'm currently a principal product manager looking after the search experience at Udemy. Prior to that, I was at a four-letter establishment, eBay, um, also yeah, looking eBay. at structured data, <laughs> discovery, uh, marketplace dynamics. Learned so much there. So happy to be here. Now I work with this guy. Who is this guy? <laughs> this guy, uh, this guy is director of product management at Udemy. I primarily work, work on our consumer experience for our marketplace. So when you go to the marketplace um, and you're looking for courses there that you're interested in enrolling in, uh, that's my bag. That's what I do. Prior to this, I was head of product at a company called Vacation Renter in San Francisco. And before that, I spent seven years at uh, Verbo, formerly known as VRBO, formerly known as HomeAway. 
uh, now part of Expedia Group. I worked on our mobile apps, website, consumer, um, and for uh, property owners as well. Worked in those different types of products there. So uh, overall, about 11 years of product experience. And uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. As you can see here, I have the prerequisite Austin, Texas, Austinite guitars. And uh, I also grew up in Dallas, Texas. So I've got a nice portrait of Dirk Nowitzki shooting over Dwayne Wade up there. Uh, go Mavs. So sad. <laughs> so sad what happened this year. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's all me. At least you guys got there. I mean, go Dubs. <laughs> we're, hap we're happy you got to participate in some of our show, but you know, you are where we're you are. We're happy too. We're happy too. We hadn't been there in a long time, so we're pretty. Happy. We're pretty happy with it. Happy with it. Um, all right, cool. So let's drive right into today's topics: System One versus System Two. Sound good? talk more about system one and system two thinking it's a pretty fascinating concept it's probably worth talking first about the book and this guy you want to tell us about the book era it's called thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman i definitely want to tell you about this book so daniel kahneman's book is a great book it is a long read 20 hours if you have the time if you don't you're in the right spot this book is about the biases of intuition. It's probably one of the best books written about behavioral psychology. And we all know this is super important as product managers, but just as functioning adults in the society. <laughs> a little bit about Daniel Kahneman and why you should sure. care. I mean, he did win a Nobel uh, Prize um, for his work in decision making. So there's that. There's that. So he's useful. probably smarter than us. Pro pretty, probably just a little bit. Chance. You know, you know, we had a lot of experience <laughs> under our belts, but he's yeah. just dedicated his entire life um, to behavioral psychology, economics, and making better decisions. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And the book is really great. I ended up listening to it at 1.7x, which uh, um, <laughs> it's pretty fast. That's a, that's a really, that's a yeah. really uh, fast speed to listen to books at. Um, but it was worth every second. Um, I'd heard actually about a lot of these concepts at the Habit Summit a few years ago, which is something that uh, Niriel puts on. He wrote the book Hooked, um, and he invites out a lot of uh, a lot of people very knowledgeable in behavioral psychology, design, um, and uh, just general, generally awesome product thinkers. And uh, there was a psychologist there. And once I, once I find her, I'll uh, link her work also in the show notes as well. Uh, but she wrote a great book about, about you know, product principles and covered this concept, which is when that was the first time I had heard of it. And it just blew me away. I mean, this, this book is also obviously um, very, very striking in terms of just what it's talking about. Um, and I think you and I have talked about how it's really shaped our thinking going forward about just how people work and how we should be building products. Um, yeah. Humans so, use products. 
and we have to understand them um, <laughs> and illuminate yeah. some of our own biases. That's true. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. He talks about um, the idea of humans versus econs, um, humans being, you know, basically who humans are uh, that we've all experienced in, in the real world, which is, you know, that we have multiple sides to ourselves. We make decisions that are oftentimes the wrong decisions um, in different ways versus econs. Econs tend to be very rational, very logical, but that's not always how people move through the world. Um, and what I really appreciated about this book is that he puts to words, I think a lot of what we've seen probably building products and researching people when building products. Um, he puts terms to how people think, um, which really kind of helps illuminate, you know, basically what you see when you run A-B tests or just when you're doing research. The terms he uses is system one versus system two. Uh, and just an overview on that, you know, system two is is like that econ. System two is much more rational, logical. Um, it's designed to be a little bit more like Spock, uh, somebody that's just going to think about things very rationally. Um, but we all know that that's not necessarily how people traverse through the world. Um, that's right. We have uh, another system called system one. System one is more impulsive. It can be a little bit more um, about the subconscious and it's making decisions in a little less rational way. One thing that I appreciated about uh, how he talks about it in the book is that it's not that system one thinking is necessarily worse than system two. Um, it just has certain attributes about it that make it uh, more susceptible to heuristics, biases, overconfidence, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And um, it just makes you more susceptible to those things that can lead to lead to cognitive error, which right. is, um, your, yeah. Your intuition, your fast thinking, um, prone to error, but gets through the door quickly, right? Uh, we all need it. Um, and I think maybe we can talk a little bit about how uh, system one and system two interact. Basically, system two gets kicked into place when system one has a question. Um, and so I, I think yeah. that's interesting. I don't, neither is better. I think that's what you were getting at. They're just different. Yeah, totally. It's, it, I also like the way he talks about system two, where system two is certainly rat rational and logical, but he also talks about how system two is lazy. It kind of just made me imagine this guy sitting at the controls with his feet up, just being like, ah, just call me when you need me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so system one is just, you know, system one is actually how most people live their lives. Like most people, most of life is is lived in, in system one. So system two kicks in, uh, like you said, when, when system one has a question or is stumped, um, and has to call system two in to, yeah. to, to figure something out. Um, which is, uh, I just like that, that whole concept of system two being lazy. I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. The great, great part for me was just acknowledging that there are two systems, right. Um, understanding yeah. and having the language to be like, okay, you know, you can have some quick thinking, but some deeper thinking is needed. And when do we do that system two thinking and when are our users? doing system two thinking. I did some system two thinking when picking my gin today. I was like, <laughs> did you? Bombay? 
Bombay, not yeah. Bombay. I don't know. I had what to, did I you end up going deeply. with? I did go with Bombay. I mean, I'm Indian, so yeah. here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's smart. That's smart. <laughs> I, I had to think about it too a little bit. I got a, I got a local beer. Um, but, you, you know, yeah, I, we did use System 2. And, and normally we probably would have just picked whatever sounded good or um, whatever somebody closest. else recommended. Whatever's closest. Um, <laughs> there's another concept that he talks about with System 1, which I thought was really interesting, which is uh, what you see is all there is. Do you remember mm-hmm. him talking about that? Yes, like, yes. That was that was an interesting concept, basically talking about how, you know, when you're in System 1, uh, basically what's just laid out in front of you is what the what that system processes and uses for its decision making where system two is a little bit more you know uh it's able to stop and reflect and gather more information and that's where a lot of that work happens but system one is just kind of like all right whatever's in front of me that's what's there that's what i'm using what i'm yep that's all i have just what's on the surface yeah which is which is interesting if you think about and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this stuff in the in the product part but um if you think about how people are in system one all the time and basically saying like what I see is all there is, um, well, it's an interesting thing when you're making products that generally means that most people, when they're using your product or service, whatever they see in that product and service is likely what they're going to use for their decision-making. Uh, they're probably not going to go off and do tons and tons of research in that moment to make a decision. And that's not true for everything, but Oftentimes, you know, sounds like most people are in system one and trying to make a decision right then, uh, which totally. is whatever we'll they see. We'll talk a little bit about that. Searchers are like that too. You know, um, I've yeah. spent a lot of time in the world of search, the psychologist of a searcher. Uh, it's deep. It's deeper than you think. <laughs> but yeah, um, what you pre- sure. what you present is how people make decisions uh, for the most part, especially when they're used to search experiences like Google. It's just like, just give me the answer. I am not going to spend a ton of time going to page 19. When was the last time you went to page two of search results, Ajay? Uh, almost never. And I think yeah. when you go look at the data about how people use search products or consumer products in general, um, like 90 plus percent of people don't make it past page one in search That's results right. in any product. It was the same for, um, at, at, at Verbo. I keep wanting to say BRBO, uh, <laughs> at Verbo. Um, same thing. Barely anybody made it past the first page. Same thing at vacation runner, just yeah. defaults. What you see is all there is. That's a real thing. All right. So what's the outline of today? We're going to talk about, we talked about system one, system two, I think we'll cover heuristics and bias. And then I'll talk a little bit about overconfidence, something I know a lot about. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, And then choices, the choices section, uh, and a little bit about what you can do with this information. For sure. So uh, I'll go ahead and hop into heuristics and biases. That sound good? Let's do it. All right. So, yeah. So as we've been talking about with system one and system two, system one, what you see is all there is. It's more impulsive. It's trying to make sense of things uh, very quickly and and make judgments really quickly. And thus it makes itself susceptible to heuristics and and biases. So in in general, what he talks about in the book is uh, a few specific concepts. The law of small numbers, anchoring, availability, 
substitution, framing, optimism, and loss aversion. Loss aversion is super fascinating, but um, so let's just start start with the top. So <laughs> the law of small numbers uh, is the incorrect, incorrect belief held by experts and lay people alike that small samples ought to resemble the population from which they are drawn. Um, basically saying that if you have a small sample of information that um, this, your system one tends to believe that whatever you see in that small sample is probably actually reality. When in reality, uh, that small sample may or may not be representative of the full sample of, of what you should be looking at. Um, and I think we actually get into trouble with this a lot as PMs, yep. where if you're looking at an experiment that's only run for a day or two, for example, um, and you've got, you know, a hundred people in each arm of the experiment and the test is, uh, it looks like it's a very clearly positive result. Um, we might walk away from that being like, oh, well, this test won, so we should just keep it. And in reality, it's a very, very small sample set. And if you get 10,000, 20,000 people in each arm, um, that effect is essentially going to wash away because it doesn't really represent reality. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know about you or I, I get caught in this all the time, especially looking uh, at experiments totally. early, I'm sure. Yeah, does that yeah, happen to you too? Oh, the diversity of user behavior is such an interesting topic. You know, we have our own framing for what we think people are going to do. And I have never, I'm always surprised, um, not just by, you know, like, okay, well, we didn't, we increased the sample size. And so now we're seeing a different effect, but just like the different preferences of people and trying to capture and represent that. That's why personalization is such a powerful feature because it accepts the fact that there is some diversity uh, in the way users are going to use your product and that they have different needs. Um, and that's why I really, really like this se section. It, it talked a little bit about numbers, but also it acknowledges the fact that you don't know what the total population is going to do, um, and you should plan for this uh, diversity in their behavior. Yeah, totally, totally. There's also some product examples of just like things that you build where um, this law of small numbers comes into effect. Um, something that I've actually seen be effective in, in the travel cases uh, when you are looking at search results for a specific location. Um, one of the experiments that that's done pretty well in in the travel case is showing the level of occupancy on that platform for a specific location. Um, so you'll okay, say so like, how many people can stay in that one home? Uh, more about uh, the it, it's looking at the total inventory of a specific location. So if I'm okay. in, okay, I see. If I'm looking for houses in in uh, Lisbon, for example. Um, we'll show at the top that 90% of our homes in Lisbon are booked for the, okay. your dates. Oh, um, ooh, that pushes me over the edge of my yeah. Lisbon, Lisbon's popular. Oh crap. I better book, right? <laughs> but Fast. What, uh, and it, and it, and it kind of, um, it preys on system one. I don't want to say preys, but it, 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 um, it takes advantage of the fact that people are in system one thinking because, um, 
when you're in system one, you don't think to yourself like, oh, I should go look at all the other platforms and look at Google and see how many people are searching for Lisbon with these dates. You basically just see, you know, what you see is all there is. So you see that, Mm -hmm. that, uh, thing at the top and you're like, oh man, I guess Lisbon is really popular. I should probably book not thinking that it's a small sample of the larger set of people traveling to Lisbon. So it might be 90% on that specific platform, but it's unknown if it's 90% everywhere, but it kind of doesn't even No, I see a statistic and I just take it for like, okay, this statistic, I'm not looking at the sizing or anything. It definitely gets me to quicken my decision-making, which is what system one loves to do. System one, all about it. What you see is all there is. I still, I'm still just thinking about that guy just feet up on the console being like 90%. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Just book it. Good enough. (laughs) Just book it already. Um, So that one's interesting for sure. Okay. Let's talk about anchoring. Anchoring. This one, it actually kind of, it's kind of scary in a way. Cause um, so, okay. Let me talk about what anchoring is. Anchoring is when we consider a particular value of an unknown quantity before estimating such quantity. Um, and he gives some really, really uh, almost frightening examples in the book of anchoring. Um, <laughs> I like so that you what, call them frightening. Dude, <laughs> they're good. Okay. You're a good product manager, Ajay. You think these are frightening. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you should, uh, yeah, as a product, good product manager, you should always be scared. Um, so <laughs> in, uh, in, in the book, he gives this example of judges. Do you remember this one? Yes. Um, where uh, judges were shown a higher number and a lower number um, before um, sentencing people. Yeah, making decision. It, Yeah. And so like before sentencing people to prison, they would be anchored on and primed with specific numbers. Um, So the researchers would show a group of judges a higher number, and then they'd show another group of judges a lower number. And it was a a random number. It wasn't even related to the cases in question. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they would show like, oh, okay, like basically the results for those judges on sentencing afterwards. And they found that if judges were generally shown the higher number, they gave longer sentences on average than people that were, than judges that were shown the lower number. And it was a, it was a significant change. It was like 40 to 50% difference when shown the higher versus lower number. I I know it's insane to think about. And these, they're making judgments about, how long someone is going to be incarcerated, uh, acknowledging the fact that humans are making these choices. Uh, you know, it's, it's good to know, but it's also not good enough. <laughs> like how yeah. do we avoid these kinds of biases? It's really hard to do. It's, it's good. I mean, it, it's good to know about these concepts in a lot of ways, because at least even just in the real world, you know, outside of product stuff, we're going to do, you can at least just recognize that things are happening to you. Uh, and that, that what you see is effective because you're, uh, you're seeing, you know, your brain works a certain way. Your system one is kicked in. Um, so, uh, some real world examples of anchoring that you probably have seen on every e-commerce site in the world, is when you have a higher price that's struck through for a lower price. Amazon, you know, you can look at Expedia, booking.com, 
Uh, go yep. look at an e-commerce site. More than likely, they're using that. And that's all anchoring. They give you a higher price, then they strike through it. And they say, here's your lower price. Look at the deal you're getting. Uh, it's awesome. You should buy it. And it works <laughs> because of because of these uh, these heuristics. It's wild. Wild. Can you really wild. trust your mind? <laughs> I mean, probably not after reading this book. Um, I'm questioning almost everything, but that is the point. Like you may not be able to overcome them immediately, but acknowledging that they exist is definitely the first step in making better decisions. Um, also knowing that your users, as I just said, were, you know, in system one, um, or a majority of people are in system one, you know, how might that shape, uh, the way we build products? Can't wait to dig into that. Yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be great. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about availability. Availability is when people make judgments about the probability of events on the basis of how easy it is to think of examples. So there's actually an example I've seen in the travel case about this where uh, we offer trip, trip insurance um, and uh, trip insurance, you know, as, as probably anybody that's book travel listening to this knows mm -hmm. you, you basically ensure the trip that you're, that you're purchasing on the website and uh, or on, on the mobile app. And so the, the insurance works effectively um, in part because of loss aversion, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Which is but something also, a lot of people are thinking about, like in terms of the pandemic, like I'm booking a trip. I'm like, when is the next variant going to break out? Give me that trip. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's a uh, good, good uh, part and choices about like rare events and things like that too, which is, which is relevant. Um, but uh, so, so in this case, you know, you're looking at, um, um, you're, you're thinking about examples of people that have lost money going on trips. Maybe you've read an article in the past about, how people um, have lost everything for the trip that they booked um, because they didn't have trip insurance or they got they got frauded out of their money, and so uh, this that that offer of trip insurance takes advantage of a few heuristics. One of them is availability, where you know you think about these recent examples where maybe you know a friend or a family member that right. lost all their money because they didn't have trip insurance, they got taken advantage of, or had to cancel right. their trip and it was non-refundable, um, and that makes you think more uh more about getting trip insurance think harder about it um yeah and and that's very much a system one heuristic i like how you guys bring it in at the end too right it's like here's the final price but what about this trip insurance yeah <laughs> yeah like, yeah a lot of that is just i mean um in those cases you're testing things at work right so you, and you keep mm -hmm. what works and so you probably sometimes maybe you you may not know about a lot of the psych psychology and stuff, but you know those experiments, those features get put in there because they work. Um, and more than likely, somebody probably tested that and was like, "Wow, it, it works!" If I put it right at the end of the checkout process, whereas if I put it in the beginning, you're you're maybe not as invested. So yeah, it might inflate uh, the price in your mind or not be as important. But when you're about to pull the trigger, and then we pray. You know, praise may be a too aggressive word, but we remind you, it's probably important to ensure this trip. Um, it's useful right there before you pull yeah. the trigger. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's all speaking to this system one stuff. Substitution. Uh, substitution occurs when an individual has to make a judgment of a target attribute that is computationally complex 
and instead substitutes a more easily calculated heuristic attribute. This one <laughs> made me very ashamed of myself. Wait a minute. So instead of solving this complex problem, I just like uh, go back to using a, a basically a simpler substitute. Um, which just, yeah. Have you done that before? Uh, I, mean, I, I do I that every day. I mean, it's called <laughs> shortcut thinking. I'm just shortcutting the work. I'm conserving resources is how I like to describe it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's actually something I've been uh, a bit more proud of in my, uh, in the later sort of stages of my career. I'm not, I'm, why am I talking about like a, like I'm 60? I'm not 60. It's just like, <laughs> okay, cool. I've been doing this long enough to know that like, if, I hear something in a meeting or, you know, based on a, an experiment that's like, that triggers something in me that, um, causes me to say something immediately to like pass immediate judgment on something, mm -hmm. uh, or immediately give advice on something. These days I've been much better about being like, oh, okay, I don't know if that's right or wrong. So let me go investigate and come back. I'm more likely to say that now because of uh these substitution things being burned with them in the past <laughs> yeah i mean you learn from experience and i think uh you have great experience when you know you know nothing <laughs> you should always research it's better and it's a good thing for people that maybe are a little further along or, or uh, earlier in their in their careers to think about which is just question that, everything question question everything. it all there's a lot you don't know yeah, <laughs> I can promise you that. Um, uh, I'm surprised, like I said, all the time, all the time. A, B tests, yeah. usability tests, it doesn't matter. I'm always like, oh, okay, there's that. I don't really know this user or not everyone kind of fits into these, you know, four or five personas that we tend to drone on and on about when we have meetings or we're trying to shortcut the explanation of who this feature is for. You'll always yeah. learn that there's more to uncover and more to understand about users and how they think. Yeah, totally, totally. You also see this a lot in in when people are making decisions about products. Um, right. So, so critical to give people yeah, the good perfect. information up front to make those decisions or to know what they're trying to shortcut to. Like you give people a bunch of facts about you know what's in this candy bar when all they really want to know is this high fat or low fat. You know, you're forcing them um, to think through more than they have to. And and if you're trying to get them to buy that candy bar, that's not necessarily a good thing to do, right? Uh, you want no, to get keep them in system one. Yeah, well, the, yeah, for sure. They are in system one. And so, and the, so like by not making that easier, they probably are looking to substitutes, which are more than likely wrong right. <laughs> to be. There you and go. that's the, kind of the Full point circle. in the book. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I'm going to hit two more things. Well, really three more things. Framing, which is also ugh, fascinating. Um, framing, how you frame a question is really important. Um, when people are in system one, the example I think they gave was when you said that a medical procedure had a 90% success rate people were more likely to opt into that procedure than if you said that the procedure had a 10% failure rate. Classic. Which is so <laughs> wild. Yeah, like it's like just by saying it has a high 90% success rate, people are like, we're like, I think the the opt-in rate was like 68 or 70-ish percent versus the opt-in rate for 
when you said there was a 10% failure rate was more like 40. I bet the marketing folks that are listening right now are like, uh, yeah, yeah. We just try and look at the glass half full. This is when I realized I shouldn't do my own market research (laughs) because I worked at the market researcher at Verbo and I had written a survey and I had totally disregarded all of this framing stuff and got Mm -hmm. like terrible data back. And then the (laughs) market researcher I worked with at Verbo, she looked at it and she was just like, yeah, let me rewrite this. Because <laughs> it just framed it all wrong. <laughs> so framing is important, especially when you're trying to get data out of uh, data out of users. You got to frame the question right. Yeah. Imagine if instead of showing people that this course was like four stars out of five stars, we were like, this course is a little bit better, but not exactly five stars. Like even that I think would be bad. Like the amount of testing that goes in to what we show on the card and and how we present the information truly informs how people make decisions about one offering versus another, right? Um, We're we're trying to help people lighten that cognitive load. We want to keep them in system one, um, but how we present the information is very, very critical to how they digest it and how they perceive maybe the overall value of that course. For sure. For sure. Yeah, it's a big deal. Okay, two more things. Optimism. System one, very optimistic. Has a hard time seeing how things can fail. Um, and they brought up the idea of like doing a, a pre-mortem to help combat this. Have you ever heard of, have you heard of that concept? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Tell me you more tell though. Us about okay, okay. I'll I... tell you about it. Okay, okay. Here we go, here we go. So uh, a pre-mortem is basically where you talk about what can go wrong with a project before the project even launches. Um, I do that anyways. I do that uh, when, <laughs> after work when I can't sleep of like, what <laughs> could go wrong with this? But I mean, this is the more helpful, structured way to do it in order to produce a better outcome, not to give yeah. yourself anxiety and lack of sleep. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think... Um, it's great to do pre-mortems knowing that your system one is more optimistic. It is. And in a group. Yeah. And in a group. As a group, you you tend to get very vested in your projects, which then can cause you to be very optimistic about your projects. That's also known as the endowment effect, which is also mm-hmm. coming up here in a minute. Um, and so, you know, thus like teams can be really optimistic about how successful something is going to be. And uh, more often than not, you know, like we know, um, industry-wide, 80 to 85% of tests fail. You know, actually, I think it's like 85 to 90%. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, you're only going to be right <laughs> one out of 10 <laughs> times, roughly. And just get used to it. All yeah. you perfectionist PMs out there, you're not a PM if you're a perfectionist. <laughs> Just expect to fail. And also, if you didn't get this earlier, no, you know nothing. You know yeah. nothing. You need to research. You know nothing and you're probably going to fail. It's a very. Yeah. This is a very optimistic podcast, by the way. Oh, I'm so uplifted. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, that's a real, that's a real thing. And so, uh, so, you know, system one, very optimistic. Um, I think most people, you know, when, especially when they traverse through, through our sites are also pretty optimistic. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty important thing to figure out how to combat. 
Uh, and then loss aversion. We were talking a little bit about this with the trip insurance stuff. Um, but generally, uh, people feel more strongly, according to the book, about um, avoiding losses than they do about actually gaining things. Um, which is why things like trip insurance is also super successful is that it's insuring you from a, from a pretty significant loss with your trip versus, you know, um, versus like talking about what you're actually going to gain with that, with that product. And we, and I've definitely seen that a lot in, mm-hmm. in a lot of products where you're, they're talking more about loss than they are about yep. actually what you're going to get, which That's is, right. uh, which totally a system one thing. That's how most people think about it. Yeah, this like urgency kind of messaging also kind of falls a little bit into that area. Oh, like, yeah. What do you need? You need to do this quick. Or if you don't do this, you won't get, you know, like, hurry up, add it to your cart. It's almost out. Uh, I can't <laughs> tell you. Um, coming from an auction site where, mm-hmm. you know, an auction, the whole premise there is that there's a limited amount of time and there's competition and making users aware um, of those risks, um, and then telling them like, Hey, you better put in a bid now or put high, uh, increase your bid limit. Um, super, super critical for getting people across the line to make a decision to invest, um, to pay attention, to engage, right. V- very, very important. Yeah. That clock on eBay, I bet was super effective. Ticking down. Like I only wish people would leave their noise on. They could hear it. All day. We, we built an Apple Watch app, actually, that would send you Uh-oh. notifications that your your tick down. Um, that Dude, was huge that would success. drive me. I don't. <laughs> I, that would drive me insane. <laughs> I'd just, just be like sitting over here and being like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose my <laughs> NBA Papa shot. God, I can't, can't deal with that. The video game or the, the actual? The video, like the, the game that you play at like Chuck E. Cheese. The arcade okay, yeah. Papa shot. Small, oh. small, small diversion here. Uh, pretty much every time we take my son to Chuck E. Cheese or or some equivalent, I'm pretty much I'm pretty much at that Papa Shop machine. Best <laughs> bar game ever. Papa to the Shop. point where my wife is just like, "Where did you go?" And I'm like, "I mean, do you need to ask?" <laughs> <laughs> you know where I am. Trying to get that high score. That's right. I got to beat these five year olds. Come on. <laughs> Papa Shop moves the. The basket, yeah. right? Comes closer yeah, and further away. For sure. That's like the best part. <laughs> All that All quality right. time at Chuck E. Cheese with your Dude, son, not so with your son at Papa Shot. Uh, you know, I help him win the games, you know, it's so, including Papa Shot. So hey, I'm doing my well, there you go. duties. That's nice. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about overconfidence. You want to take us away on that one? Yes. Yeah. Overconfidence is something we're all prone to, uh, but especially me and Daniel Kahneman talks about how we underestimate the role of chance in events and how we're prone to overestimate just how much we understand about the world. Uh, Being in a data products team, you know, most of the folks I'm working with are data scientists who spend quite a bit of time trying to eliminate biases and trying to capture in search all of the preferences of all of the users and build models that eliminate maybe some of these biases. We're constantly testing hypotheses. One thing that I've learned is that uh, the illusion of understanding and validity is something that we always have to keep present in our mind. I'd love to give you guys an example. 
you know, I very confidently run A-B tests because we're all super confident at the beginning, aren't we? Yep. I mean, at least I am. I'm like, okay, well, I think if we apply this treatment, um, then it's very, very likely that we'll see a, a lift in conversion. And th- this particular treatment had to do with the autocomplete field. And, you know, I already accepted that people are lazy and that they didn't want to type. Uh, but I thought if I showed them their, where the courses that they had visited before, then in autocomplete, when they saw that, they'd start there and then immediately convert. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, this is where I started. I don't need to issue a query and look at a search page. I was dead wrong. Um, there was so much data that supported that too. Reducing the number of clicks it takes to convert um, is a big indicator of re- that you've removed friction, which helps people get to the end state. You know, you want them in the cart, you want them in checkout, yep. you mm-hmm. want them to have entered their credit card and to have <laughs> signed up. But if it takes like you know n number of keystrokes and you have to visit page after page, it's going to take them longer to get there. Well, I you know un- uh, overestimated. The, how this feature would actually get users to check out. Instead, it became a distraction. Mm. And in my testing, I actually set up uh, my hypothesis to, and my experiment to measure um, the number of clicks on this new um, recently viewed dropdown, which is showing the recently viewed courses, yeah. to conversion. You know, what I found, uh, oh, by the way, I wasted eight weeks of testing trying to <laughs> drag my whole team through this. We all do it. Uh, yeah. I learned pretty quickly that, you know, my intuition here versus a formula basically gave me the misperception that like showing people where they had been will quicken the decision-making to getting them to convert. And there was plenty of, I think, intuition in this, I, I think, you know, there is also quantitative data, um, but I kind of was like, we're reducing clicks. You get quicker to check out. Like, let's, this will work. It, di- it didn't, it yeah. didn't. It, <laughs> didn't. It actually was the opposite because it distracted people. So uh, there you go. There you go. Do you, do you find that um, <clears throat> when you run experiments that have backing and in tools like Full Story, where you can watch people use the product or amplitude or user research even, you know, do you feel like you get just better shots on being successful with those experiments versus not? Yeah, that's it. That's a good question. You know, it all, it, in, even in this test, we looked at, you know, what are you, what do we think users are doing? It can give you a view, but like you mentioned the law of small numbers, there's net, you're never going to watch enough full story sessions or run enough usability studies in order to have captured the diversity of data, right? Um, There's a section in overconfidence that also talks about expert intuition. So if we we were to paint a picture, we have these three things that could help us prevent overconfidence. We could look at quant, we could look at qual, like you were mentioning, we could use behavioral studies, we could talk to experts. All three of those things, when looked at in isolation, are going to lead you down the wrong path. (laughs) You kind of need to look at them all together and then also don't trust any one of them. Isn't that, it's it's so fun to be a product manager. You're always wrong. (laughs) There's never a good answer. 
there's there's Um, a lot of overconfidence yeah 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 so we're expected to make decisions quickly and well um but i think in order to do that what you might immediately think is like oh you need experience and you need to have known what happened in the past that's also another bias Um, acknowledging that you probably need to look at the problem from several different angles with a few different lenses in order to build a stronger hypothesis is something that I have learned the hard way working in a data products team, because we tend to be data heavy or, you know, usability Mm -hmm. testing. Uh, You need a little bit of both. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's really, it's really important to be rooted in facts, knowing that you have this, this basically bias that your system one is going to be overconfident. It's Mm -hmm. you're going to think that every idea that you've had is probably gold, you know, and every um, experience that you've had is relevant to the way users might use your product. I mean, you are not the archetype for your user. (laughs) Man, ain't that the truth? (laughs) Um, cool. Yeah. Great. Overconfidence. That's a, that's a really important concept. Do you want to talk about uh, choices too? So choices, let me give a little summary about how he describes choices. It basically covers the key concepts of these um, different theories. There's like the prospect theory, the model, and this is something that he worked on with his partner Amos and he they published a big paper in 1979. But it's basically how human choices deviate from the rules of rationality. So uh, there's, there's basically a tendency to treat problems in isolation. And, you know, Ajay talked a little bit about framing effects where these decisions are shaped by inconsequential features of choice problems. So there's a few different types of errors and theories. Like maybe we should talk about the endowment effect. I thought that was a great one. Yeah, the endowment effect is a really interesting one where he talks about how when people, have ownership over things in their in their lives or they feel like they have ownership over something uh, they're more likely to endow it with meaning and value um, Mm -hmm. which then uh, when there are chances where that that thing or set of things can be taken away um, they have there's more value to people in making sure that they don't lose that thing which is where loss aversion comes in than right. there is to, you know, um, to not or to gain something else. So, which is a fascinating thing. It's I, we've definitely talked about it in product circles. In fact, I, it actually is in that book, Hooked by Nirial, where they talk about how encouraging people to be more vested in products, where mm-hmm. you favorite things or you save products that you want later, uh, yeah. which is, you can do on Amazon or Etsy or any of these platforms. Um, mm-hmm. you're more likely to be invested in the platform, um, and not want to lose that thing, which is when the urgency messaging comes in of like, you know, on Etsy where they say, oh, we only have four of these left. That sort of stuff really works when you're, when yes. you're invested in the platform. Yeah. Um, and you ascribe a higher so value that's all, to yep. those features as well. Yeah. That's all in down effect loss aversion. System one, what you see is all there is, right? I don't know if that's <laughs> <laughs> no, that works. Yeah. All right. What What about bad events and rare events? That that actually came up a lot too, where we overestimate the likelihood of rare events happening. 
Yeah, but so the cha- the challenge there again is to recognize that you don't know all the scenarios that are going to come up. Uh, bad events is kind of like the well, rare events is like the pandemic thing we were talking about, right? Like, yeah, rare events we overestimate that um, rare events are going to happen. Like uh, the example that he uses in the book is terrorist attacks. Where like we overestimate the likelihood that we're going to be in a terrorist attack when in reality, the likelihood you're actually in one is very, very low, very small, which is the effectiveness of terrorism, right? Like the the reason why terrorism works is because we overestimate the, the likelihood that we're going to actually be terrorized. Um, And uh, so he was, I think he was living in Israel at the time and uh you know, even he, knowing all of the science, would be nervous being pulled up next to a bus at a red light yeah, with bus bombings big. going on in, in Israel. Totally. It's fear-mongering, it basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, and it's definitely preying on a lot of that system one, uh, system one mindset, for sure. And then bad events is like we um, – sometimes we have a hard time seeing bad events happen uh or in our own lives but then also like the likelihood of bad events happening can be overestimated but also we just want to avoid them like we generally want to avoid them and so it's very much in the similar vein of loss aversion different flavor but kind of a similar thing okay this is pretty fascinating stuff great stuff yeah what about bernoulli's error Bernoulli's error is that is that bit about utility theory because I think Bernoulli. I'm gonna look this up. We're gonna do this live. Oh my god, you guys! This is like when I Google on my phone at happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bernoulli is the one that came up with utility theory. Bernoulli, yep. Yeah. Bernoulli's formulation is the expected utility hypothesis, it's a popular concept in economics, and. Uh, so Bernoulli was uh, was the one that sort of created a formulation for that. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, so I'm at the, this part in was, the book. Yeah, so that was his critical error where he assumed that everybody was like rational, you know, econs about everything and we're totally not. So... If you want to blame somebody for that, everybody listening, that's definitely Bernoulli. <laughs> it's that guy's fault. Um, yeah. So how about we hop into what we can do about all this? I mean, this is, it's like I mentioned, um, I was a little scared uh, listening to some of this stuff because you you start to question like, <laughs> like we were joking about earlier, can you really trust your mind? Right. And um, so there definitely is a, a component of that with this where you're looking at this and you're like, okay, how do I, how do I manage, you know, manage this? Um, and, uh, I think we, when we talked about it, we bucketed it into two, two areas, really. The first area is, is what you can do about it as a product manager in your career, how to fight those biases. And then the other bucket is like, how do we build better products for people? Um, so maybe we should start with the, the career stuff. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's definitely start there. So first you have to acknowledge, I guess, your own thinking and how much these biases 
might be influencing your decision making or your guidance of your team, your pod, your group. Um, and then the second one is, I guess, just acknowledging that our users also have these biases and how can we design an experience um, that allows them to remain in system one or doing less effortful thinking. Because um, generally in marketplaces, uh, for at least for the products that we're working on, we're trying to get people to an end condition of either conversion or engagement. And we don't want to make it difficult to get there. Yeah, totally, totally. On the career stuff, what do you think, what do you feel like are some of the best ways to combat these biases using these heuristics? And we talked about a little bit of, about some of them a little earlier yeah. on in, in overconfidence, but maybe we should outline those a little bit for for the group listening. Yeah, top, top to bottom, I think first uh, acknowledge that you may have your own biases. And like one thing that I do now is I try and classify them. So if I make an assertion, I oh, cool. try and that's, understand that's like, oh, is that like their small numbers? Am I, I, I try and classify. And if I can't classify it, I kind of like, okay, pass go. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if really? I, yeah, if I, if I um, basically use some of that that thinking and acknowledgement, then I'm able to make decisions with a more objective mindset. And I bake in uh, opportunities for me to learn. I just accept that I know nothing and I always tee up some level of hypothesis pressure testing. Whether that's you know talking to someone else who's outside of my scope or outside of my area and seeing if this resonates or setting up a pre-test or sorry, a post-test or a little bit of pre-usability studies. Those are some strategies that I've used. I would say that like some decision-making needs uh, more of this and some decision-making needs less of this. So it kind of depends how much time you have, how much you understand the domain and whether or not you've tested in this hypothesis area before, right? Some of our greatest wins have come from iterations of other tests where we've learned. Yeah. Totally. Um, and failed, quite frankly. We have to take a <laughs> few more swings. Hey, failures failures are some of the best teachers. That's for sure. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, it, it's making me think of some of the, the best product people I've worked with. Um, an old, old boss I had actually um, used to get really nervous when he wasn't able to talk to users on a regular basis, whether that was every day or... Uh, a few days a week, and I've started to kind of share his his nervousness around that. And oh, I think he knew. Uh, I think he knew that, like, if he didn't do that, um, he would um, lose touch with the facts uh, about users and just our markets that we operate in. And um, so, similarly, I think it's just good to just generally have a regular cadence of you know, spending time with customers, understanding the facts, evaluating data, you know, and just kind of continuously having a touch on that because yeah. um, developing that voice in your head of just what customers want or what they're interested in really helps when you're in scenarios where you do have to make decisions quickly. Um, it's good to have that built up so you have a bit more intuition about what reality is instead of just kind of living in your own biases every day. We need to spend a little more time acknowledging that there may be some unknowns here. 
And there are a few different tools you can use to help yourself. You know, we talked a little bit about research, bringing someone in, um, it could be an expert, but also be careful when and when not to use expert opinion. Um, and then just, uh, you know, accepting, um, that there's probably something to learn here and you might not be right or wrong, but using that learning to build your next hypothesis. It's a series of hypotheses. Totally. Totally. What about on the product side of things? So, you know, we, we talked about a little bit about this, but I think a lot of folks when they're building products get caught in assuming that people are in system two when in yeah. reality they're in <laughs> system one, you know? Uh, yeah. It's um, so true. When I, I, I think about that, when I see um, products that have lots of text on them, like really oh, long my goodness. descriptions. We're guilty too. Um, yeah, I'm guilty. I mean, trying and, to be comprehensive um, yeah. because you have this frame of look, I gotta tell you every single thing that this is gonna do and that's convince you no, like I just skim over yeah. it uh, yeah, if I was yeah. a user. Totally, totally. And and like every time I see that in a product, I'm like, oh man, yeah, must people must have thought that people are actually going to read that sort of stuff. And they totally don't like the best, some of our most effective tests. And I think this is how I would think about it just in general. Some of our most effective tests are tests where we take information that is fairly robust and complicated and make it more easy for system one to interpret and understand like, Oh yeah. And yeah, we can use some of these system one concepts to, um, you know, and take advantage of them to make more money. And certainly companies have tried, but even yes. things like urgency messaging are losing their effectiveness. There's been That's a right. lot of good articles and research about that. So we're seeing a lot know, of blinking now, lights and the same treatments everywhere. Yeah. So yeah, we're coming numb to it. Flashing red, hurry up. You know, there's only one left, blah, blah, blah. Um, that sort of stuff certainly, certainly works off of system one, but I think our, our jobs for going forward is, to look at these biases, heuristics, and find ways to present critical information to customers about things that they want and things that they're looking for and just making that easier, knowing that most people are in system one. They're not in system two. Nailed it. So that's right. Build it for them. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating topic. Great topic for our first episode. Yeah, we did it. Look at us. Distilled a 20 hour book. And uh, for everybody listening, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. This is supposed to feel like happy hour. So we both miss happy hour and we hope that you had a very similar experience to, to happy hour with your favorite product people. Um, please follow the show, subscribe to the podcast and uh, you follow us on Twitter at product happy hour. We're also going to be on TikTok. Ira is going to manage yep. TikTok. Uh, Get us I... our clips, tag product happy hour and all your product posts. There you go. And uh, we'll be back for the next episode. Uh, we try to make this semi-regular, so hopefully you'll hear from us next week. And take care, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, everyone. That was so good. Cheers, dude.